Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 78, Guiding Light, in which we talk about the initial development of light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. The previous episode was all about liquid crystals, especially their use to display information. Their rival in the 1970s was the light emitting diode, or LED so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about what LEDs are, which takes us into materials chemistry. The story is complicated, and there are often overlapping claimants as to who made the first LED and when. LEDs give off light by electroluminescence, which is merely a fancy way of saying light made by electricity. Now, I suppose... We could call Edison and Swan's incandescent lamp technically a form of electroluminescence because you shove some electricity through a really narrow wire, the wire heats up, glows, and thus gives off light. But in this case, I will discard an old-fashioned light bulb from our discussion. Instead, we are talking about direct electricity to photon conversions with no intermediary of heat. Even so, we go back to 1907 and the British engineer Henry Round for the Marconi Company, who was researching semiconductors. I mentioned him in an episode on the beginnings of materials chemistry. He was studying this new cat's whisker crystal radio detector and experimented on silicon carbide, also called carborundum. He reported that when he applied 10 volts of electricity to a sample of silicon carbide, the crystal emitted a yellowish light. Other crystals emitted yellowish-green or orange or blue-green. He did not understand it and merely reported it. A second researcher soon thereafter began serious investigations into this phenomenon. Oleg Losev, a brilliant Soviet scientist, looked at cat's whiskers, apparently called Christodins in Russia, in the 1920s, as well as this strange electroluminescence from silicon carbide and zinc oxide. Losev's research became well enough known that the phenomenon began to be called Losev light. Of course, Losev's work was hindered by the lack of solid-state quantum physics and chemistry, such as atomic orbitals combining to make a valence band filled with electrons, plus a conduction band empty of electrons. Even so, he continued his research through the 1930s and invented what might be called a prototype greenish light-emitting diode, although there seems to be dispute about this. My goal is not to argue about it and merely report what Losev saw, and eventually that he came up with the idea of a light relay using it, and he speculated that the electroluminescence 
was the opposite or inverse of the photoelectric effect from Albert Einstein. The photoelectric effect was that light particles, photons, fell onto electrons in metals, caused the electrons to be free from the atomic orbitals, and move around as electric current. So, Losev supposed that the electric current somehow caused light particles to be generated, the opposite of the photoelectric effect. His light relay invention of 1929 was, in his words, quote, The proposed invention uses the known phenomenon of luminescence of a carborundum detector and consists of the use of such a detector in an optical relay for the purpose of fast telegraphic and telephone communication, transmission of images and other applications when a light luminescence contact point is used as the light source connected directly to a circuit of modulated current, unquote. This sounds remarkably like modern optical communications. Apparently, Losev was also in the process of discovering and inventing the transistor by 1941, but he was killed during the siege of Leningrad, and his paper was lost. Meanwhile, American researchers were beginning to carefully understand how purity in semiconductors could be controlled for proper semiconducting elements in circuits through the 1940s. We jump forward to the 1950s. An American physicist at RCA, Reuben Brownstein, did some research on light emission from semiconductor-based diodes in the mid-1950s. His crystals were gallium arsenide, gallium antimonide, and indium phosphide, and they all emitted in the infrared so they were invisible. At the same time, G. Wolfe, R. Hebert, and J. Broder at the U.S. Signal Corps were investigating gallium phosphide and saw red and orange electroluminescence. Were these light-emitting diodes? Maybe. Only by the beginning of the 1960s was the first light-emitting diode truly and unarguably built. Or maybe not. While working at the electronics company Texas Instruments, Robert Beard and Gary Pittman were trying to invent a semiconductor laser. Instead, in 1961, they came up with an electroluminescent device that emitted in the infrared range. Yes, it emitted light, but it was infrared light, so we cannot actually see it. So is that a light-emitting diode? It certainly was an infrared light-emitting diode. I leave that as a question for you, the listener. So, what's going on? The first person to coherently answer this question was Czech-American Kurt Lehovich, a refugee, and his colleagues from the Signal Corps Engineering Laboratories in New Jersey in 1951. Lehovich was part of the post-World War II Operation Paperclip to collect important German scientists and gain an advantage over the Soviets in the beginning of the Cold War. Interestingly, a year later, in 1952, Lehovich patented a silicon carbide LED-like lamp using arsenic to dope for N-type and boron to dope for P-type. 
he added other dopants like silver, lead, bismuth, tin, copper, europium, and other metals to give light emission from yellow to blue. Was it ever built? I don't know. We imagine a semiconductor crystal which, at that time, was generally silicon or gallium arsenide or something like this. Again, such a semiconductor has all its atomic orbitals mixed together, as we've heard in molecular orbital or valence bond theory. These huge collections of orbitals with nearly the same energy levels become one giant band for the electrons to wallow around in. This we call the valence band of electrons. There are also higher energy orbitals which have no electrons, and these also get all mixed together into a giant stew, which we call the conduction band. There is a no man's land between the filled valence band and the empty conduction band, where no electron is allowed. The technical term for this no man's land is the band gap. You can imagine zapping the semiconductor with a photon of the right energy to make an electron jump from the valence band to the conduction band. Fair enough. But if the electrons are stuck in the valence band, they can't move, so the semiconductor cannot conduct electricity. Here is where the chemistry becomes crucial. Suppose we have gallium arsenide as our semiconductor. Gallium is a metal directly under aluminum in the periodic table, so like aluminum, it tends to be a valence 3 metal wanting to give up three electrons. Arsenic is a valence 3 nonmetal under nitrogen and phosphorus. The two happily exchange their three electrons per atom to each other, and you have a solid crystalline material, but with no electrons in the conduction band. Now, let's add a pinch of silicon to the gallium arsenide. In technical terms, we dope the gallium arsenide with a bit of silicon. Silicon atoms have four electrons in their valence orbitals, one more than gallium. The silicon atoms nudge their way into the crystal lattice, where the gallium atoms are. Arsenic atoms are also a bit smaller than gallium, so it's tough for a silicon atom to jam its way into the crystal structure and push out an arsenic. Every time we substitute a silicon for a gallium, we get one extra electron in the orbitals, and it can't stay in the valence band. It must move up to the empty conduction band. And this starts allowing the gallium arsenide to conduct at least a little electricity. We added electrons with a pinch of silicon, so we call this material negative, or N-doped gallium arsenide. There is another way to dope gallium arsenide, or any semiconductor, and that's to add positive charges. So how do we add a positive equivalent of an electron? We do the effective equivalent and remove actual electrons. We do that by doping gallium arsenide with an element like beryllium, which has only two electrons in its valence orbital. This creates a hole in the valence band where an electron ought to be. This hole, surprisingly, acts like a positive electron and moves in the opposite direction from real electrons when you put a voltage across such a material. A semiconductor diode is a junction where two slabs of semiconductor, one N-type and one P-type, meet. 
for the diode to emit a photon of light at this junction, an electron in the conduction band meets a hole in the valence band. The electron drops in energy into where the hole is, and as the electron falls in energy, it emits a photon of light. That's the essence of a light emitting diode. The challenge of chemically engineering the doping is to get the two types of semiconductor, N and P, at the right relative energies so you get the exact color of a photon you want emitted when the electron falls at the junction into the hole. Which brings us to 1961 and Beard and Pittman. They were investigating gallium arsenide diodes and the properties they measured seemed like light ought to be coming out, but they saw nothing. They brought the diodes to the quality department at Texas Instruments, where a Japanese company sent an infrared microscope. The microscope was there to check for defects in silicon wafers. So Beard and Pittman attached some D-sized batteries with clips to the diodes and viewed them under the infrared microscope and saw IR light coming out at around 890 nanometers, which is near infrared, not far from the red end of the visible spectrum. They filed a patent on August 8, 1962, and it was granted in 1966 as a semiconductor radiant diode. It was an idea in the air, shall we say, because General Electric, Bell Laboratories, RCA, and IBM were all working on something similar, but using cadmium sulfide and cadmium telluride semiconductors. As Beard says in his Texan accent, quote, Gary and I were in the right place at the right time, unquote. Naturally, there is a meanwhile, and this meanwhile is, how can we get a visible emitting diode? At General Electric, Nick Holoniak with SF Bevacqua was working on precisely this topic as Beard and Pittman patented their infrared emitting diode. His semiconductor was an alloy of 60% gallium arsenide and 40% gallium phosphide, which emitted visible light in the red at 710 nanometers, and he published his results on December 1, 1962. Most historians say that Nick Holoniak is the true inventor of the light-emitting diode, and it was red to red-orange in color. These red LEDs became commercially available in the late 1960s from Monsanto and Hewlett-Packard companies. So, can we get different colors? if we alter the band gap between the valence band and conduction band properly. Another American physicist, Magnus George Crayford, was working at Monsanto in their LED technology group in the late 1960s. He was also looking at gallium arsenide phosphide, but this time he added nitrogen as the dopant. Nitrogen has the same valence electrons as arsenic and phosphorus, and helps to improve efficiency of light emission. He was able to get yellow LEDs by 1971 and green LEDs a few years later. 
his idea of doping with nitrogen also improved the brightness of the existing red LEDs to a decent commercially viable level, and all of a sudden in the 1970s, LEDs began to appear on consumer electronics. Digital watches, clocks, volt ohm meters, calculators, and as general indicator lamps. The invisible infrared LED remote control also appeared at this time. An article in the magazine Popular Electronics from November 1970 discusses the drop in prices for these electronic devices. In 1969, an infrared LED cost $18, about 148 US dollars now, but dropped to $7.50 by 1970, about 58 US dollars today. LED watches were particularly popular. Hamilton Company marketed the first LED watch with red digits in 1971 at the huge price of $2,100, similar to a new car. By 1976, Texas Instruments began selling an LED watch in a plastic not a metal case, for only $20, and then lowered its price to $9.95 in 1977. At this point, LED watches, which had a tendency to use up the tiny coin-sized batteries fast, lost popularity to liquid crystal displays with lower electrical requirements. Why didn't scientists try to make LEDs from silicon or germanium, the original transistor semiconductor? Why did they choose other compounds like gallium arsenide? In semiconductors like germanium and silicon, most of the electrons are pushed up into the conduction band and have a different momentum than the holes, the positive equivalence of electrons. The holes tend to sit in the lower valence band with nearly no momentum. Therefore, the electrons can't meet the holes at a p-n junction, and so the electron can't fall into the hole and emit a photon. Essentially, the combination of the two to make light is forbidden. So at this point in our chemical history, we have red, orange, yellow, and green LEDs. We do not have any practical blue LEDs. Blue LEDs necessary for full-color LED displays had been made, but they were unreliable and dim. I add that the brightness of the existing LEDs in the 1970s was not as good as incandescent lamps, so they were only practical indoors under lower illumination and not in full daylight. The best light output they could get was around one lumen per watt of electricity. Even a tail lamp on a car needs about two and a half or three lumens per watt. So, by the end of the 1970s, the search was on for a higher power, full-spectrum LED. A lumen is a unit measuring the light power a source emits, but it takes into account the sensitivity of a human eye for various wavelengths of light. The human eye is most sensitive to yellow-green light and least sensitive to violet and red. 
an incandescent bulb has an efficiency of 15 lumens per watt of input power. So you can see why old-fashioned incandescent bulbs with filaments were used for a long time in, say, automobile taillights instead of red LEDs. You might note that science fiction movies and TV shows of the 1980s often incorporated LEDs as blinking lights, but the LEDs were never blue, for they didn't exist commercially yet. In our next episode, we step sideways from how chemistry affected society to the inverse, how society and civil rights in the 1970s affected academic chemistry departments. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.